Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. Real people experiencing real change because of a real Savior. We live in a country that is born out of rebellion to an oppressive king. That's, that's the start of our story as a nation. Uh, taxation without representation, throw the tea in the harbor, the, the whole thing, right? And our greatest stories as a nation, and 200 plus years later, I forgot to do the math, uh, are about these times when we have pushed back against, and by we, I mean our military, has pushed back against the oppression in the world, pushed back against the oppressors of the world. And our cultural ethos, it's just in the air of being an American, there is this ethic of rising up and pushing back and pushing against oppression and changing the world. We love to root for stories where people rise up and do something different and they create change and they create positive momentum. It is also true that our culture is built on an ethic of conformity and fitting in. That as a capitalist nation, the, the commercials we watch, the things that are advertised for us are built around this idea of you need this product, you need this brand of jeans, you need this thing so that you fit in. And we wanna make sure you know that you don't fit in unless you got our thing and then, then you fit in. So, so fit in, but, al but also rise up. I, even, and I, I may burst somebody's bubble this morning, I apologize for that sort of, but even the advertisements that are all about rebellion and like rise up and change the world, they want a whole lot of people to rise up and change the world and rebel just like you, like exactly like you with the same products you're buying because that's going to help them sell a lot of products. So, so conform, fit in, make sure you have the right things at the right time, but, but also, also rise up and, and change the world. Like we, we really wanna be a country of people who create change, who create positive momentum, who change the world, but also a good American would say and feel and do these things. Like we, we want you to rise up and change the world, be a rebel, do that thing, but also in your rebellion, make sure that you're not saying any of the wrong things or we'll cut you off. Like we, we, we can't. We are constantly caught in this tension between these two expectations that we cannot possibly meet both of. Mark Sayers is a pastor of Red Church in Melbourne, Australia, which I know feels like a sharp left turn from talking about America, but we'll bring it back together in a second. He is also a cultural analyst analyzing Western culture and Western history uh, along with church culture and church history because for much of Western culture and Western history, uh, they have been intertwined and tangled up together. And he says that you can see a pattern with cultures that when cultures are rising up, when, it, when a culture is the underdog, and, and I just wanna note uh, before we dive too far into this, that we have a lot of different cultures in our country, right? We have a lot of different cultures in America. Um, if you think America is all one culture, you have not been to both Portland and Alabama, okay? Right? These are different cultures, okay? <laughs> so people are giving me an amen. Yeah, they're just different, okay. When a culture is the underdog culture throughout history, their focus 
is on being very inclusive, on welcoming people in, on trying to create alliances with other people who also want to rise up so that they can gather some momentum, gather some numbers, and push their power, push their message, push their solutions up into the, the social consciousness and maybe hopefully eventually become the predominant culture in their society. And when a culture becomes the predominant culture in their society, now they have some power, which means they have some power to protect. And they will do what they need to do and say what they need to say to protect that power. This isn't just an American thing. This is just throughout Western history. For example, though, let's use America. Revolutionary War. The colonists and the colonies are the uprising culture, right? They're the underdogs against big bad Britain. Okay. So they're trying to gather as many people in the colonies to be on their side as possible. They form an alliance with France to say, hey, you don't like what the British are doing either. So let's work together and beat up Britain, gathering people in, gathering momentum, gathering numbers. And then the colonies win, which um, if that's a surprise to you. Anyway, we're here. President's Day is tomorrow. A lot more study on your part. Anyway, the colonies win. Uh, and, and then a few years later, so now the, the colonists are the predominant culture in what is now the United States of America. And a few years later, France has their own revolution and their own rebellion, their own uprising culture. And they say, hey, remember when we helped you? Like, we would love you to help us. And we went, you know, see, we have a power to protect now. And, and if we get divided between the, the United States here and France there, then we'd be vulnerable in both places and we can't do that. We have a, we have a power to protect, okay? I'm not saying that's good or bad either way. I just, this is an example of how, these, how this uprising culture versus dominant culture, okay? Modern example. Uh, when I was growing up in the 90s, what is now known as progressive culture was the underdog culture trying to rise up, okay? So I heard a whole lot as I was growing up about uh, words like tolerance and inclusion. A tolerance felt like the ultimate way to be a human being when I was growing up, that that was the message I started to receive was, look, we need to be really tolerant of other people's viewpoints. We need to be inclusive as possible. We need to make sure our language and our actions are tolerant and inclusive. And it was part of this gathering of people to say, look, if we gather together, all of these sort of fragmented people who feel like underdogs are gonna come together and we're going to be able to rise up and reach a point in society where we will be able to take this message of progress that we believe we have and we will be able to share that with the masses because we will have become the predominant culture. Fast forward 30-ish years. And at this point, the progressive culture is the predominant culture in our society. And I'm not making a political statement or a religious statement, just an observation of our culture and where we're at, that the language that felt like uprising language 30 years ago is now the common and, and the uh, standard created in our, our culture. This is how we will talk and how we will uh, behave predominantly, okay? Again, lots of different cultures in America, but it's sort of the predominant one, particularly in the Pacific Northwest, right? And so we're hearing the word tolerance a lot less. 
Some of that is because it got overused and we dropped it. Some of that is that there is now a power to protect for the progressive culture. So now, if you're saying the wrong thing, if you're going against their values, if you're teaching things <clears throat> that the progressive culture says, this does not line up with our ideas of progress, then there is a shutting down, a shutting out, and what we would call canceling, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, <clears throat> where did progressive culture learn this? From conservative culture. So you've got a lot of conservative people now going, hey, we're tired of getting canceled just because we won't line up with progressive culture. But let's rewind 30, 40 years to the time when the religious right was the predominant culture in America. And there is person after person, senator after senator, pastor after pastor going through Congress saying, hey, these musicians and these authors and these artists, they cannot say and they cannot draw and they cannot do the things that they're doing. This is wrong. It does not match up with our morality and it doesn't line up with the way we want people to talk. And so if they continue to talk and act and be this way, we will cancel them. And if we can't cancel them, we will at least label them so that everybody knows that they're wrong and we're right. Again, I'm not making a political statement at all. This is just the way cultures operate. When we're a predominant one, we protect our power. When we're not, we try to gather and create an uprising. As Jesus followers, we follow a savior who absolutely rocked the status quo in his day, absolutely pushed back on the way his society was set up to run and also said, if you love me, you will obey me. We follow a savior who submitted to a government, who laid down all the power he had and submitted to the government, allowed them to kill him. And at the same time, told those authorities, you have no power over me. What do we do? How do we follow a savior who flips tables and says, turn the other cheek. Is it hypocrisy? Is it a contradiction? Is it like our culture where there's just these two expectations and we can't possibly follow both of them? Or is there something different going on here? Early Jesus followers seem to run headlong into this tension and we see it in their own words preserved for us in scripture. Peter was the first head of the early church, the one appointed by Jesus to lead the movement. After Jesus' death and resurrection, he sits down with Peter at another meal and he says, hey, Peter, you're gonna run this thing. I need to know a couple of things about you. I need to know that you love me because I'm putting you in charge. And not very long into Peter's time in charge of this ministry, after Jesus has ascended into heaven, Peter and the other apostles, the other committee of leaders of this Jesus movement, are arrested by the same people who sentenced Jesus to die. And I want to read a snippet for us of that trial, if I can find the right one. It's, we find it in Acts chapter 5, and I'll start in verse 26. Verse 26. 
The captain went with his temple guards and arrested the apostles, but without violence, for they were afraid the people would stone them. Then they brought the apostles before the high council where the high priest confronted them. We gave you strict orders never again to teach in this man's name, this man being Jesus, but he is not going to lower himself to say Jesus's name. We gave you strict orders never again to teach in this man's name, he said. Instead, you have filled all Jerusalem with your teaching about him and you wanna make us responsible for his death. But Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than any human authority. We must obey God rather than any human authority. We're, we're Americans, we can get behind that. Yeah, we're, we're gonna push back, we're gonna rebel, we don't have to listen to you. We got this, we know this ethic. That same Peter, later in his life and later in his ministry, wrote a letter to the churches in his region to encourage them and instruct them on what it looks like to follow Jesus with their lives. And here's what he writes in this letter that we now have as First Peter in our New Testament. He writes, for the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority, whether the king as head of state or the officials he has appointed. For the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. It is God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. For you are free, yet you are God's slaves, so don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Respect everyone and love the family of believers. Fear God and respect the king. The same Peter who said, I don't have to listen to you, I listen to God, says, submit to and respect the authorities. This same Peter who would eventually die at the hand of those authorities because they said he would not submit. So is Peter a hypocrite? Are these two things that just can't go together? So we're just gonna have to pick one and hope for the best? Another early church leader named Paul would also be killed by the government for creating an uprising. If you know Paul's story, you know that he started out as part of a predominant culture. He was part of the, the Jewish elite who ran their little section of the Roman Empire. I mean, Rome was over them, but they were given some power over their region, just enough that they really felt like they needed to protect it because they didn't have a whole lot of it. And so he wanted to protect Jewish power against this Christian uprising, this Jesus followers, these people of the way. And so he killed them and got official orders to kill more of them. And then he has this radical conversion to following Jesus. He becomes part of this uprising. He becomes one of the most, if not the most prolific church planters and encouragers and instructors of the early church movement. And in one of those letters, he wrote these words to the Roman church themselves being killed for their faith. This is in Romans chapter 13. He writes, everyone must submit to governing authorities for all authority comes from God and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and they will be punished. For the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong. Would you like to live without fear of the authorities? Do what is right 
and they will honor you. The authorities are God's servants sent for your good. But if you are doing wrong, of course you should be afraid for they have the power to punish you. They are God's servants sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do what is wrong. So you must submit to them, not only to avoid punishment, but also to keep a clear conscience. This is the government that is killing his friends, that is threatening his life. And he says that we submit, we obey, and he goes on to say, we fund their work. Verse six, pay your taxes too for these same reasons. For government workers need to be paid. They are serving God in what they do. Give to everyone what you owe them. Pay your taxes and government fees to those who collect them and give respect and honor to those who are in authority. Just to get all of our biases on the table, I happen to be married to a government worker and I like that she gets paid. Paul is writing this letter to a very divided church a church divided between the Jewish Christians and the Roman Christians. And they're fighting over what rules they have to follow and who they're going to obey and how many different structures and rules there need to be for their religious enterprise that they're engaged in. But one thing that they can all agree on is that the government is the enemy. They know they can agree this much. The government is against us. And Paul says to honor and obey and pay the enemy. The enemy who, remember, will kill him for his disobedience. So is Paul a hypocrite? Is he just being sarcastic here? Or maybe this is code. Maybe he's, he's trying to communicate something to the church that is different than what it actually says. But if we take Paul at his word, we run into quite the conundrum. Either Paul's a hypocrite, there's a couple of expectations here that we can't possibly meet both of because Paul apparently found some reason to not submit the government. Or there is something different going on here. And I would like to submit that there's something different going on. Uh, let's go back to the way culture works for a moment to see how this comes together. And uh, maybe an analogy will help because when this analogy was presented to me, it, it helped me make sense of a bunch of things. Uh, Do you ever play the game King of the Hill when you were little? Right, say some, some nods. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with the game, uh, the idea is that there is some sort of higher place and a lower place, okay? So uh, it can be a, a pile of sand, a pile of gravel, a, a little grassy hill. Uh, my little brother and I played on a couch, which was not my grandma's favorite thing, but we did anyway. And the idea here is that somebody is up on the higher place and at least one person is down on the lower place trying to become the person on the higher place. And you will do whatever you have to do to get from the lower place to the higher place. It's all part of the game, brother. I don't know what you want me to do. And, uh, or to stay in, in the higher place. Um, I was a little bigger than my little brother. It was a little brutal, but whatever. Um, I liked winning. And so that's, that's essentially king of the hill, right? Higher place, lower place, you, you wanna be in the higher place. You really only need three things for king of the hill. And it's part of why it's such a great game because these things are all over the place. You need a hill, you need an enemy, 
and you need a desire to win, right? Because if you don't have a desire to win, you're just gonna sit at the bottom and go, I don't care that you're up there. So to play the game, you, you need a hill, an, an enemy. I discovered little brothers work great for that. And you know, just, just saying, uh, and, and you need a desire to win. The political structures in our country work a lot like a game of King of the Hill. There is somebody who tries to gather some people around and say, hey, wouldn't it be great if we were King of the Hill? Wouldn't it be awesome if the things that we believe, and you know that I believe what, what you believe because I just, I just told you that. So wouldn't it be great if the things we believe were being shouted from the top of the hill? So if you vote for me, we will be the king of the hill and we'll win and we'll get to tell everybody the things that we know are right for how our society should be won. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be great? So come, come vote for me and we, we will be king of the hill. And if you don't vote for me, if you don't rally around, then those people will win and they'll say their stuff from the top of the hill and we'll have to do society their way and we can't have that because I just told you how wrong they are and if you need me to repeat it, I will. Uh, and so you need to vote for me so that, so that I get to win, King, I mean, we get to win King of the Hill and, and we'll, we'll be able to be the domination of society from, from there. This is how our political campaigning works. Works like a game, a King of the Hill. The American church tends to play a very similar game. And I think there are a number of examples I could come up with, but I'll just pick one. The American church as a whole looks at our public school system and says, there are things happening in the hallways and the classrooms and the lives and the curriculum of our public schools that don't line up with the morality we have and don't glorify Jesus. And we say, Jesus, don't you wanna be glorified in our schools? And I believe Jesus says, yes, I do. I don't know that we stop to listen, but I do believe that he said, yes, I would love to be glorified in our schools. And we go, great, then we are gonna take this hill. We are gonna do whatever we have to do to put ourselves in position to affect the morality of the curriculum and the hallways and whatever we can do to try to craft this school system to be something that glorifies Jesus. What exactly is our goal though? Is our goal really to take the hill? Because it sounds a lot like our goal is to take the hill and say, look, Jesus, we won this hill for you. But don't get too excited because we got other hills that we're gonna win too. We're gonna win all the hills. And then when we rule all the hills, you will be king of the world. When Jesus walked this earth, he had every opportunity to play king of the hill. People expected him to. From the very beginning, Satan tempted him to. His followers encouraged him to. The political structures of his day were afraid that he would, and so they wanted to kill him before in their minds he got the chance. But Jesus had gathered the crowds. He had the power. He had the influence. 
He had the opportunity to play king of, king of the hill and he refused. Instead, he said this. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from, bringing, from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. And then, instead of winning King of the Hill, he intentionally lost. And he died so that you and I would be forgiven of our sin. And he was resurrected from the dead so that you and I could have eternal life. Jesus used his power, his formidable, unmatchable power against sin and death, not governments and nations. Jesus didn't prove his authority, his holiness, or his identity by winning King of the Hill. His authority and holiness and identity were proven through healing others, through forgiving others, and through resurrection from the dead. So let's be clear, and this may feel really obvious, but just for clarity, Jesus doesn't need us to establish his authority. Jesus doesn't need us to establish his authority. And for those of you who are note takers and been waiting with bated breath for your first note, there you go. His authority over the world has been set from the beginning of time. And if that was best displayed by winning King of the Hill, Jesus would have done that. When we play King of the Hill then, when we say we're gonna win this hill for Jesus, the only authority that we're possibly establishing is our own. We want people like us. We want us or people like us to be in places of authority. To be in authority on our hills. But Jesus didn't say that our mission was to establish his authority or our own. He said that we're to be witnesses to his love and life to walk in his ways, to, as we talked about last week, suffer well and bless. He said that we're to be lights in the darkness, shining hope to the hopeless. He said we are to be about an entirely different kingdom, the kingdom of God. And Jesus did use a hill as an analogy for us, but, but not to be kings. Here's what he said. You, that's, that's you and me and all who follow him, you are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. We collectively are supposed to use whatever position or power we have to shine the light of Jesus so that the world can come to know the authority and holiness and identity and love and grace of Jesus. We're not called to be king of the hill. We're called to be a city on a hill. Not establishing our power or Christ's, but shining the good news of his love, of his forgiveness, 
of his new life, of being part of healing and forgiveness and new life. Now, I want to try to make sure that I'm not misunderstood. Am I saying that Christians, Jesus' followers, should not be part of government? No. No, please, please be part of government. If you feel called to run for an office, run. And as part of a democratic society, by all means, vote and vote with your faith. Am I saying that Christians should not be part of public schools? No, actually, I passionately feel exactly the opposite. Please, please be part of our public schools. Please shine light in the dark places. The question is, what are you trying to accomplish? By being involved, are you trying to establish Jesus's authority? or establish your own? Are you trying to shine the light of your faith and your influence and your power? Or are you trying to shine the light of Jesus in places where it's needed? Why does all this matter when we're talking about this passage in Romans 13 that Paul writes up for us? Well, because this passage is about who is in charge of you and me. Let's look at it again, just the first couple of verses. Everyone must submit to governing authorities for all authority comes from God and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and they will be punished. There are so many questions here. What if the government is evil? What about persecution? Point you to last week's sermon. (laughs) There are way more questions here than we could possibly tackle this morning. And I'm not really gonna try. I just wanna give us a couple of really quick reminders. First, a reminder that the government that Paul is writing about is killing Christians for sports and entertainment. Is is arresting Christians for their faith and having their death be the entertainment for their citizens. We can't just ignore this passage by saying, well, but if the government is evil, it doesn't apply. Because that's the kind of government that Paul is writing about. Also want to remind us that Paul was killed because he wouldn't give in to this government. He found some point where he would not submit any longer. I can't answer all the questions. And the truth is, you need to do that for your life anyway. What I want to do is just give us the paradigm, the the way of thinking that Paul is setting up here that there is an order to the authorities in our life. There's an order to the authorities in our life. And the first in this order is God's authority. The highest authority for us, for the world, is God's authority. Paul, in the entire biblical arc, Peter and Moses and many others, remind us that if we believe in a God of the universe, 
a God over life and death and all creation, then he is the supreme authority. We are the clay and he is the potter. We are under and he is over. And frankly, this is hard enough for us to grasp. That there is an all-powerful God who is over us. And humans have been pushing back against this idea for as long as there have been humans, just about. And that is spelled out throughout Scripture. I think especially in our day and age, in our culture, where we're taught in a million different ways that the ultimate authority in my life is me. The self-help industry is thriving and has been for decades. And just by definition, self-help only works if I am at least some authority in my life. And it works even better if I am the ultimate authority in my life. And a culture that is increasingly turning away from God has nowhere to turn for authority except government or self. And we are living in this era with a very specific, I believe, ethic of freedom. Freedom can be defined in a lot of different slices, and I think there's one that's being highlighted more than any other right now. And it's not just the, the, the freedom from tyranny, but it is the freedom to be whomever I want to be. And we hear this in our language, right? On all sides. My body, my choice. My gender, my choice. My technology, my choice. My money, my choice. That each of us is the ultimate authority in our lives. We have the freedom to be whoever we want. I get to determine, the thinking goes, whatever I want to determine about me and my life. And yet, as followers of Jesus, that's not what we signed up for. We signed up to say, Jesus is Lord. And that I need him in my life, not just to be my savior, but also to be my king. And I will submit myself, put myself under his authority. Jesus is Lord and he and his spirit and his word is the ultimate authority in my life. And so we wrestle with our pride and we try to remember that we are under God. But God and then us is not actually the paradigm, the way of thinking that Paul or Peter or Moses set up for us. That actually next in the order of authority is earthly authority. It's God's authority first and then earthly authority and by this, I mean politicians and police, teachers and parents, bosses and so on and so forth. We are to honor, we are to respect, we are to submit. And these aren't words that I'm pulling out of thin air, pulling them out of Romans 13 and other places as we've seen. With our language, with our love, with our finances, with our hashtags, with our bumper stickers, we are to honor and respect. 
not in spite of God's authority, not in spite of God's authority, but because of it. And then the third authority in your life is your authority. God's authority, earthly authority, your authority. For all of us raised in this country, in a culture where no one gets to tell me what to do, we struggle to think of ourselves as second, let alone third in an authority order. But that's exactly the paradigm that Paul and all of scripture sets up for us. So what of the rebels? What of those who wanna rise up and change the world and try to make it a better place? Do they just need to sit down and be quiet because the government says so? No. No, I, I don't think so. I don't think they need to just conform. Here's how I think this plays out. Do I believe that Harriet Tubman should have never led the Underground Railroad because the government said it was wrong? No. No, I'm so glad she did. Why? Because I believe that the abuse and the threatening and the holding down of another human life violates the desires and the authority of God. Do I believe that a kid who's being abused by their parents or teachers should just be quiet and not tell anybody because that authority told them so? No, why? Because I believe that abusing and threatening and holding down another human life violates the desires and the authority of God? Do I believe that the Christians in China should just stay quiet and never tell anybody else about Jesus because the government said they can't? No, because the authority of God says that we are to tell others about Jesus. God's authority First, in the biblical paradigm, it is God's authority, then earthly authority, then you. As Peter said, when the earthly authority violated God's authority, as we read earlier, he said, who are we to listen to, you or God? So here's the question for us to wrestle with this week. Who is your authority? Who is your authority? Do you have this paradigm in the right order? If your highest authority is you, no one gets to tell me what to do. I don't wanna do what my parents, the speed limit or my boss tell me what to do, so I won't. That is 100% okay in our culture. You can be very, very successful in this world with you as the highest authority in your life. You can absolutely make yourself the highest authority for you. You just can't do that and follow Jesus. And if you are an earthly authority in government, a boss, a parent, you can wield your authority like you report to no one. We all have the free will to do that. Just please don't say that you're doing it as a follower of Jesus. We all, whether we recognize it or not, 
come under the authority of God. It is part of his nature as the creator of the world. We all come under it. No one has to prove that authority and no one gets to come out from under it. And with all that authority, you know what God chooses to do with it? He chooses to love. What Jesus did with all of his authority is he chose to lay down his life in love so that you and I would be forgiven and know that we are loved and be invited into relationship with a holy God. And we are called under that authority as followers of Jesus to love likewise. And so next week, we're gonna talk a little bit about why and how we use whatever power we have to love like Jesus. But this week, we wrestle with this question. Who is your authority? Are you the king of the hill? Or as the king has called you to be, are you a city on a hill shining a light for him so that others would know his authority, his holiness, his goodness, his love, and his grace? I know for me, my pride really struggles with making God the ultimate authority in my life. I'd rather it be me because that feels like then I can prove that I know what I'm doing. I can prove that I got it under control. And besides, if I give God authority in my life, then it's not really under my control at all. And I kind of like the control thing. So as we're wrestling with this question, uh, as the worship team comes up to lead us in another song, uh, I'm gonna pray for me as I wrestle with this. And I'm gonna do so assuming that I'm probably not the only one. So as the team comes up, let me pray for us. Father God, we give our lives to you. God, we recognize your authority in this world. And that we don't have to prove it we don't have to establish it, it just is. And God, we wanna step into that authority. We wanna recognize we come under it. God, I wanna make you the ultimate authority in my life every day. Father, would you give me, would you give us the courage to follow you in such a way that it shines a light of hope into dark places, that it communicates your love to the world around us that I would be, that we would be people of honor and respect. And that in that, you would be glorified in every area of our lives. I pray all this in the holy name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for checking out our podcast. Find out more or connect online at easthillsalliance.org.